0: can't read in words which just aren't there. Hello, I'm David Schmitz, a barrister and a member of Ten Old Square. I'll be talking to you today about a recent bankruptcy case that confirms a principle which those in the know have believed all along, but which is nonetheless counterintuitive, to put it mildly. The case is Edwards, trustee in bankruptcy of Jack Singh Wasu against Aurora Leasing and Howard de Walden Estates, decided in January of this year by ICC Judge Prentice. The case answers the question, when can the court interfere with a transaction by a bankrupt where it takes place not before the presentation of the bankruptcy petition, but between the bankruptcy petition and the bankruptcy order? As we all know, there are a number of principles which protect the general creditors of an insolvent company or the creditors of a bankrupt individual. These apply if the company or individual makes a gift or a transfer at an undervalue or if it gives an unfair preference to a creditor at a relevant time before the presentation of the petition for a winding up or for a bankruptcy order, as the case may be. I'll now go into a little bit more detail. The principles governing insolvent companies and individuals are highly similar, but with one absolutely critical difference. First, I'll deal with companies. In the case of companies, the governing principles are in Sections 238 to 241 of the Insolvency Act 1986. Section 238 gives the court the power to make an order in effect undoing a gift or transaction at an undervalue, but it provides that the court shall not make such an order if it is satisfied that the company acted in good faith and that there were reasonable grounds for believing, at the time of the transaction, that it would benefit the company. Note that it is the company's state of mind which is relevant, not the state of mind of the other party. For present purposes, the most important part of section 238 is subsection 4, It gives the court jurisdiction to make orders in respect of gifts or transactions for a consideration, the value of which is significantly less than the value of the consideration provided by the company. Remember here the reference to the value of the consideration. What this all amounts to is that the court has the power to review a transaction if made for inadequate consideration, even if the other party was acting bona fide. Section 239 deals with unfair preferences. It confers a power on the court to undo these if the company enters into a transaction with a creditor or uh, where the effect of the transaction is to improve the position of the creditor should the company go into insolvent liquidation. Again, the court is not to make such an order unless the company was influenced by a desire to give that advantage. So again, it is the company's state of mind that matters. Section 240 deals with the question of the relevant time. It provides that a time is only a relevant time if the company is insolvent then. It also sets out other principles upon which the court must act, for example, the presumptions which apply according to how long ago the transaction took place. But the most important point for present purposes is that the question how long ago always means How long has elapsed between the transaction and the commencement of the winding up? And under section 129, the winding up commences at the time of the presentation of the winding up petition. It does not commence at the beginning of the winding up order. The result is that sections 238 to 240 only affect transactions made before the presentation of the petition. So what happens with transactions made after the presentation of the petition and before the winding-up order? If the transaction is by a company, section 127 is in point. It says flatly, in a winding-up by the court, any disposition of the company's property made after the commencement of the winding-up is, unless the court otherwise orders, void. That's it. So far as the other party is concerned, he needs to apply to the court to allow the application, and the court has to grant his application, otherwise, the transaction is void. But what's the situation with an individual insolvent debtor? Well, the sections which apply to the bankruptcy of individuals, 339 to 342, are very much to the same effect as the sections we've just looked at in relation to companies. And what is most important here is that the definition of relevant time also is essentially the same. That is, it must always occur before the presentation of the petition. Therefore, as with sections governing companies, sections 339 to 342 have no application to a transaction made after presentation of the bankruptcy petition and before the bankruptcy order. What does statute provide in the case of a transaction post-petition? Here is where it gets interesting. The relevant section is section 284. It begins promisingly enough for the trustee in bankruptcy. Where a person is made bankrupt, any disposition of property made by that person in the period to which this section applies is void except to the extent that it is or was made with the consent of the court or is or was subsequently ratified by the court. The relevant period here is the period between the petition and the order. However, subsection 4a says something which isn't in the sections that deal with companies. It says, The preceding provisions of this section do not give a remedy against any person in respect of any property or payment which he received before the commencement of the bankruptcy in good faith for value and without notice that the petition had been presented. Here the period is the period between the petition and the making of the bankruptcy order. See section 279. This is precisely the period we are considering here. Note that, in the case of this lifeline to the person who has dealt with the bankrupt, it is not the state of mind of the bankrupt that matters, but the bona fides of the recipient. Note also that there is no mention at all of the adequacy of the consideration which is paid to the bankrupt. So the question is, should the words, in good faith, for value, and without notice, be interpreted so as to exclude from their protection persons who have, albeit in good faith, provided value which is significantly less than the value of the benefit they have received? In other words, can post-petition transactions with bankrupts be undone simply because they are transactions at an undervalue? The Wasu case answers this very question. The facts. Mr. Wasu was made bankrupt on the 18th October 2013 on a petition presented on the 23rd March 2013. The trustee in bankruptcy made claims against two creditors who had received payments between the dates of presentation and of adjudication. Between those two dates one of the creditors Aurora purchased equipment for a dental surgery and leased it to a partnership of which the bankrupt was a member. It was only because Aurora had received the payment of a rental installment that Aurora committed itself to its purchase, and it was this sum which the trustee claimed back. In the case of de Walden, the company, before the presentation of the petition, had let premises to a company which was connected to Mr. Wassu. The lease had a six-month rent-free term, and the first payment was due on a date which occurred after the date of the petition. Mr. Wasu made that payment through an intermediary, and this was followed by two later payments, all of which were made before the bankruptcy order. The part of the judgment with which we are concerned begins at paragraph 34. It mentions numerous authorities which the trustee cited, and which make it clear that the overriding purpose of section 127 was to ensure a pari passu distribution of the company's assets among its creditors. The judge noted, paragraph 38, that two strands could be discerned, the preservation of assets and their proper distribution. It was the trustee's case that section 284 should apply to individual insolvency along the same lines as section 127 applies to corporate insolvency, that is, with a leaning towards the preservation of assets and parae passu distribution. And to that end, the reference to a purchaser for value in subsection 284.4A, should be regarded as referring only to a person who provides the bankrupt with money or money's worth, which, from the bankrupt's point of view, is equivalent to the value which the bankrupt has provided. Subsection 284 for a the trustee argued, should therefore be treated as a narrow exception to the general rule, which is that any transfer of property made after the presentation of the petition should be void, and that the transferee should hold it contingently upon trust for the transferor's estate if the petition ultimately leads to the transferor's bankruptcy. The historical reasons for the presence of subsection 2844a, were explored via an examination of the doctrine of relation back in the old bankruptcy statutes culminating in the Bankruptcy Act 1914. This is of considerable interest, but for present purposes it is enough to make three brief points. First, The section and its predecessors were the result of a concern to protect an innocent purchaser who might deal with a potential bankrupt in circumstances where he had no idea that bankruptcy was impending, and who might therefore unwittingly become a trustee, something potentially more unfair than having to face a clawback claim in respect of a valid transaction the risk of the purchaser becoming an unwitting trustee made it appropriate to treat such a purchaser in a manner similar to the treatment of equities darling, that is, a bona fide purchaser of the legal estate without notice, although in the case of bankruptcy the innocent purchaser need not be purchasing the legal estate. Secondly, as the judge put it, section 284.4a Quote, Was not an exception which must therefore be given a restricted ambit, but a defense which is part of the principles. It can therefore be construed according to its terms. Quote. Thirdly, as those terms make no mention of the consideration provided by the purchaser having to be equivalent to the value conferred by the bankrupt, they ought not to be read in that way. See paragraph sixty one. There is no explicit qualification of the word value. All that is required is property or payment which he received for value. So, provided the receipt was not gratuitous, which it will not be where a consideration was given, value will have been provided. A transaction made post-petition can therefore be defended in circumstances where a transaction pre-petition with an individual or a transaction pre- or post-petition with a company cannot be defended. That is, where a bona fide purchaser provides consideration from the point of view of the bankrupt happens to be significantly inadequate. That, though, is not the end of the matter, because the purchaser must still have been bona fide, and this can be a high bar, as it means more than a mere absence of dishonesty. See paragraph 69. Now, when I began, I referred to those in the know. I have used that phrase because, in his conclusion, the judge quoted a passage from Muir Hunter at paragraph 3-700.1. It is difficult to argue that the words for value in this subsection should be interpreted by reference to the Insolvency Act 1986, subsection 339.3, to mean for a value not significantly less than the value of the property disposed of by the debtor it requires the addition of many words which are not there. What this all amounts to, therefore, is that the nature of the protections offered to a debtor's creditors on the one hand and to innocent purchasers on the other can, surprisingly, depend upon some narrow distinctions. Whether the resulting inconsistencies in the law will be resolved, and if so, how, is something which only time can tell. Thank you very much.